First John 1, 1 through 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life that was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. Lord, we thank you that your word forms us and transforms us. Lord, um, we just love you. Um. John was not lying about a couple of things. <laughs> and with that kind of attitude, I'm not sure if I want to teach with you uh, on Revelation. <laughs> I am so looking forward to the end of the angst that I have with uh, teaching an, an entire book or a series of books on one Sunday. Um, the, I, I stress, every, every time I, I come to a study, I stress, because I, I, I look at the book and I say, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to do this justice. There's no way I can cover everything. And, and, and I have to first overcome that hurdle um, every time. Um, and then, I, and then I have to then understand, I have to, the second hurdle I have to overcome is, then I know in a couple of weeks I'm not going to be able to come back and like fix anything that I, that I, that I botched the last time I, I taught, because we're on to a whole new book. Um, anyway, I'm glad I got that off my chest. Uh, I'm looking forward to 2023, and I'm sure I'll find something to have angst about in the next year as well. Um, but anyway, John has been, you know, I don't, I, I'm sure if you've been coming for a while, you notice that John gives me a, a tough time all the time. He's the proverbial little brother, um, the irritation that you didn't know you wanted or needed in your life. Um, but, um, I th yeah, thorn, yeah, thorn. And I say, Lord, take this thorn from me. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's what the Lord has been telling me all these years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, there was one more thing that John's been busting my chops about. And I was thinking, maybe I can, maybe I can win today. But he says, I, I, I have not been able to preach a sermon 
under the 30-minute mark. And the clock's ticking. I don't think this part counts. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but anyway, I have three quick points, and I'm going to hopefully get you out of here uh, in enough time to beat the Methodists to Culver's, okay? Okay. That's good. That's gold, huh? Yeah, 10, 10 out of 10. All right. All right. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, really just like, again, I'm not going to do it justice. We're going to look at a couple of verses, and I'll be ticked the whole time that we didn't cover everything. Anyway. Alliteration for this morning. Reductions redundancies and uh, reassurances Redu uh, reductions We're, we'll begin with reductions when i look at the epistles of first second and third john i really see a reduction of the gospel of john and i mean that it's a reduction in a in a good way in a in a culinary uh, sort of way the first thing that popped in my mind is, is that Beth, she makes this really great um, green chili roast every few weeks or so, because I, I, I basically beg her to keep that on the rotation. But she takes this roast and she sears it off, and then, and then, it, and then she puts all these onions and garlic and delicious things, green chili, and, and, and it just cooks all day, and it just fills the house with this wonderful smell. And what's really interesting, because I'm not a cook, is uh, watching the reduction process, to watch the flavors continue reducing into the, into the meat. And when she's finished, it's amazing that the meat is just falling apart, and the onions, they're gone. They've disappeared. They've totally absorbed into the, the meat. And Anyway, it's delicious. And that's a lesson in cooking. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going on this morning. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but reduction. That's the idea I have in my mind. Is, uh, it gets more potent. Yeah. Uh, it gets more potent. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, I'm not trying to force a metaphor here. But, it, but in fact, uh, Daniel... Uh, Aiken, in his uh, commentary on the epistles, he cites A.E. Brooke, who identifies that there are no fewer than 51 parallel references in 1 John and the Gospel of John. It's very interesting, right? 51 parallel references. And I know this might be a little bit nerdy for y'all this morning, but I want you to notice just the soteriological similarities that run through the book. In other words, the the, the passages that pertain to salvation in, in, in John's epistles and the Gospel of John. I have um, a little something for your homework and research to, to go up on, um, on the screen there. And we won't cover the whole thing. Are you going to put that up there? Yeah? Okay. Okay. <laughs> What's going on? I don't know. <laughs> Okay. 
sorry. Yeah. Hey, you're dealing with the tone this morning, just so you, just so you know. Okay. You can, you can learn about that later. Um, but interesting, in the parallel passages, you'll notice that John has a bit of a, his own Romans road in the, in the passages. And again, I'm not going to you know, dig too deeply into that, but I thought if you wanted to go study and just look at the soteriological similarities between uh, the epistles and John's gospel, they're really uncanny. So that's just like for fun to look at. So you can put that away now. Oh, you can put it back because somebody wants. Well, you'll have to. You'll have to like take a picture or something, or you know, something like that. Now, now I'm not nerding out. Um, now I'm not only nerding out on these uh, these uh, the parallel nature of these passages, but I think this particular tidbit is really helpful because it helps us establish that that John the apostle was in fact the writer of these uh, epistles. And this is a, a legitimate question if you're coming to the epistles for the first time and have no understanding around them. Because you notice that immediately when you read the, the book, and when um, Christine started in chapter 1, you'll notice that the book just begins. There's no traditional greeting there. And when you get to 2nd and 3rd John, the most clarification that you get on the author's identity is that it's written by, and I quote, the elder. That's it, just, just the elder. So there is uh, some ambiguity there in terms of who wrote the book. And it's important to establish that, that John did, in fact, write this book. And I think that that internal evidence that you have of the parallels between John's gospel and those John's epistles gives a really, really solid case to, to prove that for us. But also, history is uh, very supportive of John being the author of these letters. Uh, church history, church fathers, in fact, all the way from everyone from, from Polycarp to Papias have resoundingly credited the Apostle John with the writing of these beautiful little letters. And this is important because if this is true, and I think it is, if we have letters from the last living apostle, we have words that have been simmering in the gospel for a lifetime. And that's what I just kept coming back to in the observation, or the first initial observation of this book, is that John's account is a life that has been stewing in Jesus, just simmering in the love of God. He's the apostle who is, who is, who is leaning on the, on the heart of our, our Lord. He's the only apostle who was there at the cross. John, for whatever reason, he's the one who was there. And then he's the only one who lived uh, a long life and lived it day in, day out, bleeding out for the gospel and the, the, the work of the gospel. And so, if this is a life that has been 
just reducing over and over, saturating over and over again in the gospel, we might want to pay attention to the words that he has to say. It's, it's way more delicious than um, a green chili roast. It, what we have in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John is, is really rich gospel concentrate. Really rich gospel concentrate. Um, what does that look like? What does is, what is rich gospel concentrate look and, and sound like? Well, at the end of uh, John's life, the consensus is that he settled in Ephesus. There he ministered to the next generation of Christians. And, uh, and as you can imagine, his, his sermons and his little talks were probably highly attended. According to uh, another church father, Jerome, uh, J- John's attendance would actually carry him to church when he, ge- when he became too weak to walk there. Uh, Michael Lefrave, I don't, I don't know how to say this French last name very well, but in, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, There the people gathered earnestly to hear the aging apostle speak about his experiences with Jesus. As John's strength diminished and his ability even to speak declined, Jerome tells us that he usually said nothing but, little children, love one another. The listeners reportedly grew weary of hearing the old man repeat the same line over and over. Teacher, they asked, why do you always say this? According to to Jerome, the aged apostle replied, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. You see, what gospel concentrate looks like, what it sounds like, is love. It sounds like the love of God. And this is a really fun fact for, again, Bible nerds, and I think helpful to the the, the teaching as well. But even though these books are so small, you know, you can read them in one sitting. You can read, read them several times in one sitting. They're really small. The books of first, second, and third John, for the exception of the Psalms, contains the most usage of the word love in all of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Love. John just repeats himself over and over and over again, which is why the second point is this, really, this book really is a book of redundancies. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he says the, the author employs an amplification technique. And if you read through the books, and I highly recommend reading the book over and over again in one sitting, that's the best way to reduce it in, down into your own heart, into your own mind, to let it really saturate. But when you practice that particular method of amplification, you realize that uh, John it really is repeating himself, but he's repeating himself for very important reasons. And again, 
The greatest theme that comes out of the book is love, which is why John, when he saw me this morning, he said, are you feeling the love this morning? He asked me if I'm ready to love, and I told him, yeah, I think so, maybe, I don't know. Um, no? No. <laughs> you see, Christian, just like the Christians who were sitting down with John the Apostle and listening to him, uh, although at, at, at times we do, we should never tire of learning about the love of God and the God who is love. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we get tired of hearing about loving one another. And we say, are we going to move on to something bigger, better, more beautiful? Well, according to John, as he has let the gospel reduce down into his heart for a lifetime, he says, love one another. He says, love, 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 love. I'll give you the most popular passage out of 1 John Chapter 4, verses 7, all the way through 21. Here's what he says. He says, Beloved, and notice love. It's kind of a theme. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever love loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to turn away the wrath of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that, this, uh, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has, been, has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think John is making a point that love is preeminent. Uh, Paul does support this same idea 
when he eloquently writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because without love, all of it is noise, right? It's a clanging cymbal and a sounding brass. Even if it is orthodox, uh, bare-bones Bible Christianity, and it has not love, it is useless. It's nothing. There's a lot to unpack in that passage that I read, but here's the gist of it. We must learn the love of God and the God who is love. We must learn the love of God from the God who is love. I was recently reading C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, and here are his preliminary thoughts on 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We must not begin with mysticism, with the creature's love for God, or with the wonderful foretastes of the fruition of God vouchsafed to some in their earthly life. We begin at the real beginning, with love as the divine energy. This primal love is gift love. In God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. And what does that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. When we attempt to love like God in this world, what well are we actually drawing from? What source are we actually going to to gather that love up? Lewis, he makes the point that it must not begin with the creature. And it must not begin with mysticism, the creature's love for God. Whom do we turn? Where is the well that we go when we try to access love, learn love? Is it the Lifetime or Hallmark channel? Is that where we're getting? Is that where we're learning love? Um, I don't know. I, and nothing against us that, but uh, just, again, where, where, are we, where are we going? Are we, do we go to our fa- favorite rom-com? Do we, look, do we put a pop on a Matthew McConaughey movie and say, that this is really, I'm really going to learn some love here. Um, to whom do we turn? Where's the well? Where's the source that we draw love from? Lewis is, is saying, does it come from our own esoteric ideas? In other words, do we, are we grabbing them out of, out of the ether and taking them into our hearts because they make us feel a certain way? Um, I, I think that is the air of post-modernity, is, is grabbing ideas out of the ether and, and, and placing them deep in our, our hearts. But, but love does often come uh, from mysticism, from the creature's understanding of love in esoteric ways. Also, we can see div- those who are partakers of divine love, and we can, we can try and extract it from them. We watch other humans walking with Christ, um, expressing the love that the gospel, uh, has, gospel concentrate has produced in their hearts, and we, and we glom onto that, and we say, that is where I'll, I'll learn love. 
And I'm not discrediting these processes necessarily. I'm just saying that John's gospel is asking us a real specific question. And it's saying we must go to the source if we're going to learn love. In other words, we must go to the person and the, and the work of the Son of God who, who not only demonstrates love actively, but who is the embodiment of that love. The one who doesn't need love. We need it. We, we all know. And if we, got, if, we really, if we sat down and really got honest, we would, we would all talk about the weird particular ways in which we need it. And, the weir- and then the even weirder and more particular ways in which we try to get it. But do you understand that the creator of all things, he never has a sense like, I need something from you? Because he is love. He's satisfied in that. And for, be, and, and in eternity's past, in the Trinitarian love, uh, perfect love existed in need of nothing. And what the story of Scripture is telling us is that because God is love, he invited his creature to enter into that divine relationship. I don't know about you, but that's pretty ridiculous. Um, It's enough to make you a little Pentecostal. So who do we, whom do we turn? Where do we go? Where's the well? Where are we drawing from? What's the source we're trying to understand and procure love from? To the people who are partakers or the person in the work of Jesus Christ? Later on in The Four Loves, um, Lewis, he makes the distinction of likening it from turning to the portraits to the original and from the rivulets to the fountain. You see, we are looking at portraits. We're, we're, we're looking at yeah, portraits when we should be looking at the original. We, we're, we're going to little, uh, little, little, little tiny tributaries when we can be going to a fountain just gushing with, with love. And that's true for all of us. We understand that struggle deeply. This is the reason for redundancy. This is why love in these little letters is is almost the most concentrate of love in the entire Bible. This is what a life looks like when it's been saturated in the gospel. That's what gospel concentrate looks like. And so... John is telling his, his brothers and sisters, his little children, his, the term he fondly called, he refers to them so often in, in the text. He's telling his little children that he's going to leave. He's going, he's going away. And that they must love. They must get to the source. Get to the source. Get to the source of love. John's redundant because he understands what it means to be a human and to have deep need and and to have that need only met by Jesus Christ. And this calling of, of love, to love 
one another. It might even be redundant for us this morning. You might be saying, Anthony, come on, move it along. Let's talk about something else. Um, give me another chart to look at, some you know, passages or something. But the calling to love one another, it might be redundant, but it is absolutely necessary. In fact, the more divisive, the more stressful, the more lonely and anxiety-riddled this world and our society grows, the more compelling the need becomes to have a clear exhortation of the love of God from the God who is love in this world. We need Jesus desperately. We need God who is love desperately. And that is the message that this world needs desperately. John, in the, I guess in the tenor of the text, he goes from, or I, I, I imagine it, from this reduction to, and these redundancies, and really it's for these reassurances. And that's where we'll begin to wrap this up. I think I'm going to get it, John. Where, where, where are we at? <laughs> Come on. Okay. Um, listen really fast, everyone. Ultimately, uh, the letter is, is, is beautiful as it bleeds love because it's so pastoral. It's from a man who loves his children, loves his family. He loves the family of God. Um, John, in four distinct ways, he seeks to provide comfort to Christians. And his reasons for writing to them is really reassuring around the ideas of what love for God will produce in the life of a, of a believer. And I'll give you four of them. There's four from the text. One, and Christine read it this morning, he, he says we write this to make your joy complete. In chapter 1, verse 4. He says we write to make your joy complete. Do you realize that the love of God will complete uh, the joy within uh, the Christian's life. Love for God, God who is love, will complete our joy. And that's important to hold on to when we are like, um, like we're dogs, maybe without a bone, looking for one, easily distracted in this world. All of us can understand how easy it is to be distracted by something that we think will give us joy. Right? Uh, temporary joy, and sometimes we even mistake it as giving us uh, permanent, long-lasting joy. And we say, this is it. This is the thing. And of course, we read Scripture, especially you read, read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and he tells us how fleeting uh, anything that is not eternal truly is. Because really, it all is. At the end of the day, if it's not eternal, it's, it's fleeting. All of it. All of it. Good, good and bad, it's all, it's all fleeting. And so John says, we write this to you to complete your joy. Uh, and this is, this is so critical to, to Christianity. There is a now and not yet nature to our joy being complete. We have joy, we can have joy here and now in the goodness of the gospel that is declared and offered to us right here, right now. But we can all... We can all um, 
wake up and open our eyes and, and look at re- the reality and understand that our joy is not complete. It's not finished. In fact, John, he writes about this in um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and I have that up on the screen for you. He says, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, joy is not complete. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we are going on into completion, and that's what Paul writes to the, to the Philippians. He says, God will be faithful to complete that work that he started in you. He won't, he won't finish it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is an ongoing process here. And so it is important that as we live life on this land, that we don't look to com- have our joy completed by things that are not eternal and that are fleeting, that are prone to rust and, and degradation and thievery and the likes. That's, that's kind of my take on Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But our joy will be complete only in the God who is love. And so John says, we write this so that your joy will be complete, but you have to put your eyes on Jesus. Number two, he, sa- he, he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, I write to you so that you will not sin. You see, love helps God's children from not committing sin. In fact, the love of God keeps us from habitual sin. That's, you, you want to get, get scared in, in reading 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? You want to be terrified? Some of, you, some of you weirdos like horror. Silas, my son Silas, he's a, he's a big horror fan. He's a weirdo. Um, but uh, um, I don't want to be scared. Who wants to be scared? Um, no, I, I'm just I'm messing with him a little bit. But you want to be, be terrified when you read, read the 1st, 2nd, 3rd John? Read John's words around habitual, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, and it's terrifying. I mean, he, he, he goes all the way to um, saying that it's demonic. And, it's, uh, and, I th- and I'm pretty sure he's talking about the sin that, um, that there is no answer for because the individual refuses to repent around it. But anyway, you want to be terrified, read, read, read his words on, on that. You see, the love of God, God only, only love for God can truly keep us from sin. And I, and I, and I think I want to make the distinction between that and morality, because morality can make us look good only on the outside. And that is the, that's the problem of the Pharisee, Right? Uh, they, look, they, they look like a whitewashed sepulcher, but Jesus says on the inside, dead man's bones. Dead man's bones. And that's, always, that's what I always tell myself when, when, when I'm trying to like front like I've got a veneer of holiness. It's, I just want to hear, dead man's bones, Anthony. Dead man's bones, right? Um, it's death. And here's the good news. 
Here's, here's the love of God embedded in the text. In, in, again, in chapter 2, verse 1, and this is why it's important to have the whole of context, because he says, I write to you so that you, you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he says, he says guess what? If you are a sinner, you, you'll be honest about your struggle with it. And you'll also be eager in love to drive to Jesus and let him cover it. Let his righteousness be your righteousness. That's what imputed justification is, right? God granting and giving his righteousness to us. That's the gospel. Morality saying, I'm going to work, I'm going to do good, I'm going to show you, God, how, much, how good I am, then you'll love me. I'm going to show you how holy I am, and then you're going to bless me. You're going to give me some eternal goods. No, that's, that's not the gospel. That's not gospel. That's religion. And certainly a misunderstanding is that God loves me so much, I'll do whatever the heck I want. That's, that's uh, antinomianism. That's, you know, anyway, I'm getting off. I'm losing, losing things. But there is righteousness for us from the God who is love. Given, given to us freely. Freely. By faith. By a word of repentance from our hearts. It's given freely. The love of God will keep us from sin. Will help us in our path of sanctification. So that, so that on that day where, where he says we'll look like Jesus. Jesus will see us. He'll see himself in us. That day is coming. Number three, uh, he says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Chapter 2, verse 26. Won't spend a lot of time there, but the love of God will also keep you from those people who are preaching another gospel. And I think I've covered what a false gospel is, but there are people promising joy in all sorts of places that have nothing to do with Jesus. And so God's love, God, love for the incarnate Son, love for God who is love, will, 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 will keep us from following fools who, who declare a, a, a truth that, that is incongruent to the kingdom of God. Of God, and th those messages are are everywhere, everywhere. They 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 hit every generation, demographic, every every ideology. They're there. They exist. No one is escaping the onslaught of the the world system. And there's a lot of conversation around uh, avoiding the world and remaining in Christ in the text as well. But again, like I said, I can't, can't do it justice. You can't do it justice. You can't. Number four, uh, in, the, in the final chapter of 1 John, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may, you may know you have eternal life. I write these things to you so you'll know you have eternal life. I mean, if we're being honest, some of us are terrified if we're truly saved. I think that's, that's probably a phase of every Christian. Does God really love me? 
Am I truly saved? Am I really inheriting uh, eternal life? And that's the beautiful, you know, end cap to John's thought process here. I'm writing so that you will know. You'll have this assurance that you are loved by God. Not because you're lovable, but because God is love. Because God is love. And so, questions, wrapping it up. Number one, guys, we see that John was simmering in the gospel. It is, not in, is the love of God what I'm simmering in? We know John was stewing in this in a lifetime of Jesus. It was just reducing down over and over again to where he, he can't even get carried. He has to get carried to church because he's so, so old. And, and, and I'm sure things aren't working so well up top. And, but he knows how to dispel the beautiful gospel concentrate to his children. And it's love one another. And I love it because the people coming, they're like, does he got anything else? <laughs> you guys, there is nothing else. There is nothing else but the God who is love and his son. John's mantra, number two, the song that he sang was, love one another. What's ours? What's my mantra? That, I, didn't, I didn't like that question because that was the one I was like, when I'm talking and, you know, you, you can ask Silas. Don't ask Silas, okay? Because he'll tell you the truth. Um, or, or Beth. What is Anthony saying all the time? What will he, what will he, he won't shut his mouth up about? What's my mantra? Well, that's for me and Jesus, okay? <laughs> what's your mantra? What's the thing, that, what's the song that you're singing? What's the thing if you, you asked your closest people, what would they say the thing you're always talking about? Because the answer to that will tell us what we are truly saturated in. What we're really being reduced in, what's really, really being reduced into who we are. My, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, my heart, our heart, God's heart, is that in Advent, we would know about the love of God and the God who is love. Let me read a poem, and then we'll be finished. Frank Houghton wrote this in 1934, and it still slaps. <laughs> Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou, who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Thou, who art love beyond all telling, 
Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldest have us be. Thou, who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Jesus, we worship you. Your love. Because you are love. May you have mercy on our minds and our hearts as we continue to live and move and have our being in this world. Please take this beautiful gospel truth, the, the knowledge of your love, and saturate us today. Spirit, we, we ask for your, your, your grace to pour that out upon us today. May we continually be wooed by what you have done in order to rescue us. We believe that you are alive. In Jesus' name, amen.